Okay, and, well, uh, there you go. There you go. Peter's got a mobile horse behind him, which he's been explaining to me the reason of. Yeah, it's just, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a, in a much smaller living space. I uh, decided to sort of scale down. And that's the only thing I can't figure out where to put it. it and that's so, only part of it. That's only part of it. There, are, There's another whole piece to it. And there's no wall that that can go on? No, no. I mean, I've got stuff hanging all through the apartment, but there's no big. And I also don't want to have people come into my living room and see a giant mobile horse. They'll think, did I take a wrong turn off the freeway? You know, it's going to be like not good. So <laughs> how so much anyway. is the gas today? But but <laughs> but where did you get? That's a very cool thing, actually. Where did you get it? How did you get it? I bought it in an antique store in Pasadena easily 25 years ago. Wow. I just thought that's cool. I do this, you know, sometimes like I was traveling and I was in Savannah, which turned out to be like a great, great city. And really? there was an antique shop downtown and they had the, the letters from a Gulf station. There's no, it's not like a theme, by the way. It's not like I'm only <laughs> collecting this stuff, signage from gas stations. But I um yeah I have the I have the Gulf letters someplace and you know all you can do is really put them out of order like flug <laughs> stuff like that and that's all you can do it's not a lot of fun I paid too much for those and those are in storage so it's ridiculous I I'm really liking that horse and it's red red's kind of like the, the theme color around here so so Peter we the last time we spoke well I think you did my living room after you did the this little show yeah. but it's been oh, about yeah. five years it's been a while. Yeah, and I was working with Norman Lear. We were doing mm. a pilot together. And I always tell this story of the time that I did your show because that was the day that we sold the show. And we ended up driving all over town. It was one of those things where you're pitching you know, all over and in the car. And by the time I did your show, it was like 5.30 or something like that. And you know, when we got settled, it did it. And then I left and... When, and before that, we had we'd sold the show at NBC. And I said, and Norman said to me as we were walking out, how long will it take me to get to Pasadena? And I said, well, oh, 20, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, something like that. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, there's a judge there who does screenings of movies and he's showing Cold Turkey, which is, was one of Norman's movies. Mm -hmm. And he, I'm going to speak afterwards. So anyway, I said, okay, well, good luck. Here's, you know, I think if you go this way, you'll be fine. Whatever else. I can't believe I'm telling him how to get to Pasadena. <laughs> so Come I did. On, he had a driver then, didn't he? Yes. He, yes yeah, he yeah, of course. But, still, but so I, I did your show and then I was driving home and I started to like bitch to myself about it. It had been such a long day and I hadn't eaten and I was hungry and I was like, whatever, and tired. And at the time, uh, our, our ages were transposed. I, I, we had the same digits. He was 95 and I was 59 at the time. And all of a sudden I stopped in the middle of all this grousing and went, my God, <laughs> Norman's still in Pasadena. And, I, and you had wine. That probably made that was probably not a I, good I, move. I was probably loaded and dry. Yeah, because you also needed to have some food. I didn't give you any food. We just gave you wine. That was wine. not a good move at the end of the but day. But I can't, I just I always think about how much I was complaining. And this guy who's like near a hundred is like out on the town. You, you know, know I, I, I know we were talking, and and it continued what 
I was complaining when you were at the studio because I couldn't get Norman to do the show and he had done my living room, but he, um, he did. I went uh, right before the pandemic, kind of, I went to his office. He was still going into the office every day, three years ago. And uh, I went to his office and we had a great time. And as I mentioned to you, I just saw him 100 years old. He's walking up to the stage doing a tribute to George Shapiro. Unbelievable. He, um, the last time I saw him was probably pre-pandemic and I stopped by his office at Sony. Right. Um, And he was out on the balcony having lunch. And he said to me with such excitement, he said, do you see what I'm eating? Do you know what this is called? It's a poke bowl. I've, I've never had a poke bowl in my entire life. I've just had three of them. You know, so he, he, I love the fact that you can be that age and be enthusiastic, you know, for things. Especially about pokey. Pokey, but, exactly. Uh, something, something new, you know. So tell everybody the show you were working on with Norman. We were talking about it briefly before. Tell us about Guess Who Died. And, and uh, as okay, so this is what I recall. I said I wasn't going to talk a lot and I'm already talking too much. But when I was in Norman's office, he had boxes on the floor, boxes and boxes of show ideas that had never made it to air. Did you Uh, did you know that? No, no. no. Boxes and boxes. And one of those was Guess Who Died? He told the story of how he had wanted to do that years before. And then he resurrected it with you. Is that correct? Yes. It was like a passion project for him that he kept being told this will never get made, never get made. And so finally, I. I, I got, you know, was suggested, and you know, if you have the opportunity to work with Norman, you're doing it. I don't care if it was like cleaning up in front of the studio, I'd be out there with him <laughs> in the bag, you know? So, um, and it was, it was, it was really interesting, you know, to, to, to work with an icon, you know, which made it sort of difficult because sometimes I'd say, Norman, I'm going to cut a couple of things here. Why don't you tell me what you don't want me to cut? You know, I'm just trying to be so deferential because, you know, he should know better than I do. Um, So that was it. That was really interesting. And we made the show, um, I think, to both of our satisfaction. And NBC just didn't didn't take to it. You know, it wasn't. Okay, so now I as I recall, you had another offer. I don't know if it was Netflix. I don't remember what the other offer was, but it was a a place where you guys were going to have more freedom than than. Network. Yeah, I think we believe that, or maybe I told you that when I when I believe that, and then I think upon closer inspection, mm. it turned out to be not a, not a good deal. It was you know sort of like all right, well we'll give you six dollars <laughs> and half of a camera, and you know it's like that kind of thing. It was like wait a, wait a minute, this isn't what you said, you know. That was such that I still remember that pitch too, and I'll I'll tell you right now, I believe it was at. Um, you know, everybody moves around. So you think, right. oh, I'll, I'll think about the place and I'll whatever. I think it was Amazon, maybe a long time ago. Right. It a was like six totally years different ago. regime. Mm-hmm. I think it was Amazon. And um, it was me and Norman and Brent Miller, who's Norman's right, of course. partner. You know? So it's the three of us, but I'm really doing the pitch. And every now and then I'll look at Norman and he'll take over and he'll charm them and do this whole thing. It was the longest pitch of my life. 
How I mean, so? I mean, at one point, we were pitching to three people. And at wait, one wait, point, were you pitching to babies, like to 20 or 30 yes. year olds? Yes, yeah, we, of course. Yes, we're, we're pitching to, to younger people. And I swear to God, this is not an exaggeration. At one point, the person in the middle actually did this. No. <laughs> like, check their watch. And I'm like, Jesus, this is terrible. And it was just, it went. <laughs> I mean, it went all the <laughs> oxygen went out of the room. It was absolutely oh. death. Oh. And at the end, they went, "Well, that's wonderful. We'll 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 do that." I was like, "What the hell? You put me through that and then say yes?" Wow. Very strange. Very strange. Well, that's interesting. So, so now, as I also recall, at the time when you were first courted to go work with Norman it was to do a reboot of All in the Family. And I'm thinking now it wasn't six years ago, it was five years ago. And I remember you were kind of like, I'm not going to redo All in the Family. And because One Day at a Time was already on the air and was doing very well, the reboot. But now come now, there has been a reboot of All in the Family. So, well, there's been... There, there's been a different treatment of it. Yeah. You know, there's been sort of a celebrity treatment of it, and which is, if you think about it, actually pretty smart because the reason I would never reboot All in the Family is because those performances were iconic. There's just yes. no way you're going to recreate that. It was the equivalent of like when Mel Brooks did The Producers. I was thinking to myself, and I actually had seen Mel, and I said, you know, you got to do Young Frankenstein. And then he did it, and I went, oh, that was a mistake because those performances were iconic and they yes. couldn't be matched. And the same thing would have been with All in the Family. So, and and if you were going to do All in the Family now, I don't know who put it on. Uh, it would be to, you know, to, to tackle the same topics, the audience. Well, it was so politically incorrect then. And yeah. I don't know how they actually, I don't know how Norman got away with what he got away with. I, I really don't. A different, it was a different time. Maybe they just thought it would fail immediately. I have not. <laughs> I mean, they put a you know they put a warning on it in the, on the original show, which they eventually removed. Mm -hmm. but, but I just it's not the it's not the right time. You know, with political correctness and everything, you can't. You just couldn't do it. So for for multiple reasons, that was never going to happen. So they at least figured out a way to do it, where they're they're not even you know. They're, I know, I know what you're saying. Yeah, you know, they're taking original scripts, and it's it's they're stunt casting it is what they're mm -hmm. doing, and so now it's sort of an event, but right. you're still getting to see the material and whatever. So so I think they figured out a way to do it. Okay, we'll we'll say that. Okay, <laughs> boy, <laughs> we'll we'll say that. You uh, know, Peter, I I don't know if I told. I think I told you this in in a text recently, but I'm rebinging Rescue Me, mm -hmm. and we talked about this a lot last time. But this is a new audience uh, for this. But for me, um, as a woman in recovery um, with a history of addiction, yeah. um, I. To this day, and I didn't think this would be true. Uh, Snuffy and I are watching it. He had not seen it the first time. And I'm coming back and seeing it after what you went off the air in 2011, season seven. We're in season three right now, but you started in 2004, I think. Like and um, it is as timely, as relevant. Uh, well, the 9-11 stuff aside, although, yeah. Yeah. you know, those... I mean, we all remember everything about it, don't we? That we'll never forget that. Yeah. Um, 
I am just blown away. I still don't understand how you as a normie, I was unaware the last time I interviewed you, I didn't remember how many episodes you actually directed and wrote. I mean, yeah. I knew you were the co-creator, but I didn't realize that you had your hand, both hands, both feet, all body in. How the hell as a normie, did you have like a great room of writers who were addicts? I mean, how did you do this? Well, I'll be completely honest with you. I mean, well, first of all, I'm not quite a normie. I mean, I'm not, I'm a gambling addict. So I've had a gambling problem for many years and it's been controlled for the last decade or so. Controlled, but, how, do you go to the, is it controlled in the rooms or, or other no, methods? No, it's controlled given that I don't have access to my money. <laughs> That's the only way that was. <laughs> Ultimately, the only way to control it was just to say, he can't have any money, which is embarrassing sometimes, you know, when I have to ask my partner, can you give me 20 bucks? You know, it's kind of embarrassing. But that was how, how I did it. So I certainly do understand addiction, you know, but the reality is Rescue Me never had a room. Three people wrote that show. Dennis, myself, and a guy named Evan Riley. It shows. We wrote the entire hundred and whatever the hell episodes it's insane it shows but, but well yeah and it may show i mean look it may show in in terms of quality sometimes dipping or quality whatever. consistency continuity i mean it shows yeah um but it became but De dennis i'm sorry to interrupt you dennis i know had a cigarette addiction yeah um, is dennis an alcoholic i don't i don't know his story you know, i don't really know his I, we've mm -hmm. never discussed it, but he has. Well, a so who had all that insight into that? The we, drinking. We knew many people, some okay. of whom were some of whom were associated with the show, who were more than willing to talk to us. I see. And say, here's what my life is like, and here's how I, here's how I need the program, and here's how I've fallen away from the program, and here's you know. So they were more than willing to open up about that. Um, and we did just, anybody we, ever say to you that's not the way it is like I wouldn't do that or no because you guys never hit a false note did you I don't think so I mean mm -hmm. it was you know because we because we dealt so much with failure that felt real you know the characters are very flawed and mm -hmm. continually fail and um you know I may, I may have said this the last time I talked to you because I forget, but I think over time, you know, I always tend to like go, oh yeah, that was a good show. You know, <laughs> just kind of like, or whatever, that was a piece of shit. Whenever I'm talking about my own work, I'm sometimes not complimentary. I think a lot of people are that way. Mm -hmm. But with, with Rescue Me, as time has gone on, it has taken on more of a patina for me of a massive accomplishment. Massive. The, and, and I always say it's it is quite an audacious show to think that you could do a show post 9-11 that used 9-11 as a touchstone and make it funny and painful and ultimately hopeful that I don't know. I don't I'm still thinking, how did we do it? <laughs> I know, don't know I, how you did it. And you did all of those things and yeah. more. Um you dealt with Alzheimer's. Yeah. You dealt with gay on the peripheral in yeah. that in within that context, which was yeah. so taboo. Well, I covered that. 
so that was my own own story i guess (laughs) but so many so many things that weren't being dealt and just the the physical violence uh, uh, spousal abuse and and um and i love we're not up to it yet in season three but tommy gavin goes through those stages of drinking getting sober going out again then he starts to pray then he goes to meetings and he lies and then he tells the truth and then he he finds god you know just it's so real we did it so real we did it what i i love the show i should go back and watch it now it's great dennis i want to do a mystery show we've never done one it's a different structure and it had to do with it had to do with him going drinking with his daughter, which is like really a low point you know, <laughs> where they go out drinking. And somebody, I think it was Lenny Clark's character, I think, or Bobby, uh, Bobby's character, who um, they are sick of his drinking and they poison a bottle. They think that's going to, you know, they lace a bottle with something that will make him really sick. So they think that'll teach him this lesson and maybe turn him around, except his daughter drinks from oh, I, and they can't find her and not up to that yet completely screwed he's completely has no memory of the night and so it's really dragging information out of a person who can't remember anything as the clock is ticking as who knows where she is how sick she is whatever they can't find her and i just loved writing backwards like writing all the clues to as he's going it was a bar called this well it wasn't a bar it was a beach and it was this and there were a pair of earrings and there was a it was a really fun I can't remember which it's a later season but I can't remember I don't know why I'm talking about this but I really enjoyed no I'm telling you watch it again it is just and I think I told you this last time my favorite moment in that show one of my I have so many but Dennis is outside a bar and he wants to go, he's sober at this point and he wants to go in and he wants to drink and he calls his sponsor yeah. and the sponsor talks him down yeah. and the camera pulls back and the sponsor's in front of a bar lovingly looking in and it's like, oh my God, yeah. that is yeah. just <laughs> genius um, <laughs> how addiction works. And uh, our good friend, Jack McGee, uh, I was in touch with him earlier, sends his love to you. What, what a Jack is amazing in that show. He is absolutely amazing. You know, you when you look at that punim on Jack, say (laughs) he's a firefighter. I buy. That's not an actor. That's like absolutely. That's a real guy. He just happened to be a really good actor too. An excellent actor. What everybody? Everybody is pitch perfect, and and also just the fact that they love each other. The relationships are so complex, and people love each other, hate each other, go away, come back. I mean, it's just, yeah. Um, it's very layered and wonderful. So, okay. So what, let, we're going to go back to your career stuff, but the pandemic happened. It's two and a half years. Yeah. Were you in the middle of something when, when all that went down? I was very lucky to be working. Um, well, yeah, I had done, I had done before, just before COVID. I had, um, executive producer written the reboot of Mad About You with Paul and Helen. And so that was um, a challenging experience just because we had a very, we had a very 
accelerated schedule, which would have been difficult to, you know, um, deliver on. Uh, and then in the middle of it, Helen was in a really bad car accident. So we lost, you know, it was like, it just kept getting worse in terms of how can we ever get through this? And, you know, Paul and I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. There was no choice. He'd be, I, he'd be shooting the show for that. I'd be off camera writing next week's. I mean, it'd just be crazy. So he did that. And then I left, I'd had a deal with Sony for a number of years and I left there and I went back to FX where I'd done um, Rescue Me. And so during the pandemic, I was developing two different shows, one of which was actually very personal, a show that I said, someday maybe I'll be able to write this, which was about coming out in middle age, about a guy, you know, father and a husband and father coming out in middle age. So I wrote that. And I went through a rather challenging development <laughs> process. That's all I'm going to say. A rather challenging development process where I ended up not necessarily doing the show that I wanted to do. Uh, but I did go to Toronto this winter. Oh, you shot it. I shot two episodes. I shot the first two episodes. And um, and then they passed. So that was a real disappointment. And I had been writing another show about a Catholic priest in a small town, very much like the town that I grew up in. And that sort of fell by the wayside, too. So it wasn't really, I was working, but nothing, I had nothing to show for it, which is always like a bummer, you know. Who was playing you? Cal Penn. Because, you know, because if it's a gay man, we needed to cast, we needed to cast a gay man. Mm -hmm. And just as we were starting to cast Cal, it sort of came out that Cal had come out. And somebody said, wouldn't that be a good idea? And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. So he did it and was wonderful. I thought he did a great job. Um, we had a great cast. I can always tell when it, it goes swimmingly and the cast is great and everything. There's no way that show's going forward. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the shows where it's the shows where everybody hates each other and they just wanna, they, nobody wants to be there. Those get picked up and they just run and run and run. You know? oh so God. so once the pandemic hit, what 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 was your life? What's your what was your life like? during that I, period i had decided that i was going to drink my way through it <laughs> and i was going to have a quarantini every night at five o'clock i was going to kill i was going to kill all sorts of viruses with vodka <laughs> you know <laughs> and this and this lasted for a week like maybe a week and i went well this is not gonna this is not gonna happen and i just had this moment where i was like you know i'm gonna come out of this covid period better than how I went in. And I got lucky because the gym that I belonged to down the street opened a gym on their roof outside. Wow. And so I was able to work out. I went to the gym every day. Wow. Lost almost 40 pounds. Holy moly. You're the only person who lost weight during I know. And <laughs> without getting COVID. I never got COVID. Neither. I know, I know. I'm knocking on the wood, on the laminated wood product, Carson. <laughs> laminated and, wood product. And I just, I just never, I never got it. And I got into, I'm in better shape now than I have been. In my, wow. I weigh the same as I did in high school. <laughs> wow, that's So that's amazing. what I did. I mean, that's what I focused on. While I was suffering with my writing, I, that's, uh, that's what I did. Okay, that's what I wanted to ask you, because I know so many people got really creative and really productive and they did all they clean every drawer in there. I did none of that. I mean, I did. I went live a lot, but I did no basic writing. I did no basic. Class. So 
so are you when how serious were you about lockdown and all of that stuff and how normalized have you gotten like are you back to normal completely yeah i didn't i know i i know people in who have i think been psychologically altered by the experience you know mm -hmm. which is really unfortunate Mm -hmm. I had, I remember the first days of, you know, leaving my house and thinking, like walking in the parking garage with nobody there going, I wonder if I'm breathing, you know, and I thought, <laughs> I, can't, I can't live like this. I just can't live like this. So all I can do is be as safe as I can be, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to put myself into situations that are unsafe. I did because I traveled during COVID and I traveled like some crazy stuff. Like I went to Florida which, you know, it doesn't, you know, COVID doesn't exist there, apparently. It's skipped. You know, it's all bunched at the border on Georgia. But uh, it doesn't exist there. So, because I was visiting my mother, and I, at a certain point, I'm like, you're leaving. You're getting on a plane. You're going home because you're not staying down here with this craziness. And I went to Florida twice. Um, and only, only one time in all that time did I go, this isn't safe. And it was on a I was at Logan Airport on a shuttle bus to take me to the rental car. And I was like, there are too many people in here. This is all too close. I don't like this. But other than that, it was just, I wore a mask. I got the shots. I did everything I was supposed to do. I never get sick. Poo, poo, poo. And right. so, so what is, what is life like now? So did you get back into a writing discipline? What's your life like now? Uh, uh, I'll be honest with you. I became, yeah. I was very depressed about um, the show that I shot not going because obviously it was a very personal um, story and I, I really believed in it. And I, I actually fell into some kind of a depression where I had to go back into therapy, which I'm still doing. Um, it really had, I, I had a bad time and I really, and it, and it was, it, it, it made me question everything I'd ever done. Like I almost was saying, my career's a fluke, clearly. I'm, clearly I'm not talented, but somehow I've managed to fool everybody. It was really some dark shit. Um, so it's, it's been hard for me to get back into um, a writing because I have to sort of push that down, mm -hmm. you know? It's very, and it's you hard. don't think that has anything to do with the pandemic? You think it's just because of that one project? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, you know, I really didn't let the pandemic change my outlook. I mean, I felt, I felt more bad for my kids because I was like, you guys have to be really safe. You know, don't think, you know, because you're young, you're indestructible. You know, I, I was more worried about them, but I was like, mm -hmm. doing, I'm doing everything right. So I don't have to worry about it. Like, I don't have to let this affect going you. to florida is not doing everything right peter not in I, anybody's I book was a that was more of a rescue mission to get my mother out you know okay 88 years old and i'm like come on get get out of here you kook. <laughs> so is she here now she's she was back home in massachusetts oh she's in massachusetts but she's going back to she's going back to florida soon she's going to take a cruise of course you know which is like COVID central she's going to take another cruise so. yes let's just blow it through the the air 
vents. I, like I, I have a friend on a cruise starting today. I, I don't understand any a of that. Bucket, a bucket of viruses, a floating bucket <laughs> of bucket virus. My yeah. son is going to a concert tonight, Harry Styles. He's going to be in the pit. He, the last time he went to a concert and went in the pit, he got COVID. This is, you yeah. know, okay. My daughter went to a concert, got COVID. So it's just like, okay, what did, I don't know what you expected, but okay. Although I went to the Who last night, but it was in the Hollywood Bowl. It was outside. So okay. that's, a whole, that's a whole different deal. Okay, so, you know, I, I had forgotten that you really got your start in theater. I, I don't think we talked about this last time. How, how, how did this career come up? I know you were a performer first. How, how, where did that come from? Did you come from a show busy family? What was the no, thing? No, nobody in my family was into that. I started to do shows when I was in high school, just like a lot of people. And I thought I was going to be an actor. And, and, and I, I, I quickly got over that idea. <laughs> oh, I was still performing. And mm -hmm. uh, I was doing a, an act uh, with a partner. And we started in Minneapolis and went back uh, to New York. And eventually we performed uh, off-Broadway in like 1989. And um, at that point, I that I saw the end of that. Like that wasn't going to go to a next step. That 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 off Broadway show was it. And I was turning thirty, and I was like, I got. And I was married to my first wife, and I thought, I got to I got to do something else. And I call. I had an agent, thank God, um, and for the act. Mm -hmm. And I said, I think I'm interested in writing for television. And they, of course, well, okay. Wait my, a minute. You know, wait, wait. We have to go back a couple steps. Yeah, you're you're writing this cabaret. It's, it was a cabaret act, right? So yeah, you, we we you, wrote it and performed it. Yeah. So you wrote it. So was that the first writing you had done? No, uh, you know, while I, while it's strange that the act didn't get me noticed in Hollywood, I um, saw something. I must have seen an ad for there was a, a theater in New York back then in the late eighties called the Manhattan Punchline. Yes, an I... annual festival of one act comedies. And I saw this and I thought, you know, I can I can probably write a one act comedy. It's not as long as two acts or three. I can probably. <laughs> so I, you know, whatever. So I wrote one and I turned it in and they did it. And and they ended up doing one of my plays for the next four years. One, one of them was a musical, but they did one every every four years. Wow. And they and they all got better. Like the first one was really almost like a, you know, a university variety show sketch. It was pretty broad, but they got they got more. How adult. did you know how to do this, Peter? Did you were you studying? Did you go to school no. for it? No, I had, I probably had been writing you know, uh, you know, college sketches. You know, in shows that I put on in college, and then I had moved to Minneapolis when I flunked out of school and I was- That is unbelievable to me that you flunked. Yeah. What, what school were you at? UMass you, Amherst. And you flunked out of school. I That's hard to- Because I didn't go, because I, I was too busy doing shows. Ah. And I didn't go to class. So eventually, of course, they thought, they said, you might want to reconsider, <laughs> <laughs> which was their way of saying, get out. Yeah. And, uh, I, I had a connection at the school who knew this fellow, uh, whose name was Dudley Riggs in Minneapolis and he had a theater there called the Brave New Workshop. And he said, uh, I got this fellow from UMass got me on the phone with Dudley and Dudley said, yeah, I'll give you a job. So it, when the summer ended, I took a train and I went to, um, I went to Minneapolis. I stopped in Chicago. I got a, 
this is a you know this is only when you're young okay this is, vicky this is only when you're young the train stops in chicago i get off i go to second city i go in and i say hi i'm here for my audition what and they say we don't we don't have any record of first of all we're not auditioning people and we don't have any record and i just went oh I just got off the train. I came all the way from Boston, which wasn't a lie. <laughs> you know, what balls. I must have been believably crestfallen because they said, well, uh, come back in half an hour and we'll pull everyone together. And they did. And I auditioned. What? Not only that, they said, well, what are you going to do for the rest of the day? And I said, I don't know. And Del Close, who's, you know, the father of the yeah. guru of improv, mm -hmm. Um, took me under his wing and I spent the entire day and into the evening with Dell, which was an experience. So, and, and then I went to Minneapolis and then I sort of ingratiated myself into the theater, but, and then they, Second City called and said, we would like you to come back and audition for the touring company. And I went back and auditioned, which was like cutthroat, but I got in and I turned wow. it down. I turned it down because I'd already established some stuff in Minneapolis and I wanted to do that. But anyway, that's a side story. So wait, so um, what did you leave to go do in Minneapolis? What were you doing so there? This guy had said, I'm gonna, I'll give you a job. So I get to Minneapolis and it's like a movie. I've got everything in two bags and it's raining and everything like that. <laughs> he lets me stay with his son, which was an odd, odd situation with a roommate. And all, I don't know what was going on. And eventually I, I did get the job in the theater. I was the janitor. That was the job. You, you turned down a thing with touring with Second City to go be a janitor. No, in no, that, this happened. I, I told you out of order, you know, okay. uh, the whole, uh, you know, coming back and, and auditioning for the touring company, it happened later. Okay. So I became a janitor and I learned Minneapolis sort of. And then I, I, I said, gee, this is no good. This, I don't want to be a janitor. So I left and I got a job in a, a bank, in a music store. And then I got a job in a bank, which was insane because I actually worked in the trust vault of this big bank in downtown Minneapolis. The gambler who can't be trusted with money. <laughs> I used to like, there used to be armed guards in a, in a booth that we had to pass by each time. And I'd take like a wad of AT&T stock and stick it in the front of my pants so they could see it. And I'd walk out. So long, fellas. And they'd laugh. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> wow. So anyway, eventually, the theater in Minneapolis called me back. Would you like to be the music director? Because I played piano of the touring company. And I said, yes. So I did that. And I started to take improv classes and they said, oh, he can really do this. And so I actually went into the resident company, the main stage company at that theater. And then transitioned about two years later because I got, I just easily get bored and I'm not really a good actor. I mean, you know, that's a bit of a shock, I know. Um, <laughs> but this fellow had another- But you were on Rescue Me. I, I, and that will back me up. So um, I- I, he had another theater across town and he said, uh, I've been doing this Miss America thing for 30 years. Would you rewrite it and do it? And Miss America? Miss America. And I said, even in the, you know, this is the mid eighties, even then the idea of satirizing <laughs> Miss America was old. I mean, that's just like a, <laughs> such a, such a lame target. And I said, look, I, I think it would probably be helped if we did that as half the show. And then I'll write a new first act that will be a topical musical review. 
And so that's what I did. It was called Miss America and Her First Act. And <laughs> that, that was the show. And it, be, it was a big hit. And that what started, was the first act about? It was just a musical review about life in Minneapolis. And, you know, it, it was original music and whatever. I wrote all this stuff and, it, and nobody had done it. You know, I'm talking about doing a review like, I don't know if you know, remember the name. This is before my time too, Vicky. So Julius Monk, who had of done course. reviews in New York, you know. Mm -hmm. In fact, I actually have, it's full of shit right now, but I actually have on the a an ashtray from the upstairs at the downstairs. Right? Upstairs at the downstairs, of yeah. course. Yeah. Sure. So I knew all about, about review, you know, musical review. So Anyway, it, it led to another musical review and then a play with music. Did you sing, a, Peter? Did you, oh, you, did you, you sing and dance? Yeah, I would sometimes be in them. You know, there, when I, after a year in Hollywood, uh, Esquire did something about, like a comedy issue. And they said they had the top, I'm not going to remember the wording. It was like the top 50 hot people in comedy. And I was number 49. This is after one year, by the way. I, wow. I thought it was pretty impressive. And I was described as former song and dance man, <laughs> which is not really, if you've ever seen me do any of that, go, thank Ow. God it's former, thank God. Oh. Yeah. But. Now, so did you, have you ever had actor's remorse? Have you had writer's remorse? No, no. I mean, every now and then I, I had a friend who was a casting director and I'd say, do me a favor, um, send me out for something, I, you know, that I would be appropriate for. Just send mm -hmm. me out for it. And, but I wasn't doing it to um, get a part. I was doing it to go through the experience, to remind myself of the experience so that I could treat the actors who auditioned for me with a little more compassion. Wow. Yeah. So I, I, did, like that that. For, I did that for a number of years. And it re always reminded me of the fucking misery so I, I i always you know was very or tried to be very kind to people coming in you know wow that's uh okay so how did the how did the segue happen from being the song and dance man to uh well no to... i really just i was like this is you know so the plays were getting done these, right. these plays in that theater in new york mm -hmm. and that's when people from la started going are you interested in writing television and I said, no, <laughs> I really did because I had that, you know, I, that, I, I had adopted sort of that Woody Allen, uh, Annie. I, I'm in New York. Yeah, oh, I'm yeah, on yeah. East Coast. I'm in New York and that's all, all those people are heathens and it's all shit. <laughs> and I think a few years went by and I, like I said, I was turning 30 and I think my in-laws were like looking at me going, is this guy ever going to do anything? You know? Now, are you making a reasonable wage doing this? I know. Of course. No. I mean, I was working, I was working like I, I worked in an ad agency. I had I had jobs. You had day of, jobs. In terms of what I was making in the theater, it was some gaudy amount, like you know, eight thousand dollars a year or something. Right. So I just had to get it together. And my first wife and I lived in a small apartment in Brooklyn Heights, and she watched television. I didn't even watch television, but she watched it. And the apartment was small enough that if she was watching it, then I was watching it, or at least I could hear. <laughs> at least I could hear it. And I said. Um, I think there's only one show that I could probably write, and that's Murphy Brown. Or it seems to be a, 
a smart enough show that I wouldn't be horrified, you know. So I called my my agent from theater agent. I said, I think I want to write television. And he fell to the ground and soiled himself. <laughs> and, you know, he couldn't believe he was going to actually make money on me. But, but, said, but what's interesting, the Hollywood wanted you to write television. Yes. They found out about you because somebody happened into one of, of your play. shows. Or... Because of the plays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I just said to him, can you send me a Murphy Brown script? Just so I know what it looks like on the page. So I can approximate it. And, and you I... had not studied screenwriting no, or no, any, no. you didn't read a book. You didn't. No, no. no. I just needed to see what it looked like on the page. So I wouldn't make any mistakes in the layout. So I wrote an episode of Murphy Brown. After How many all, had you watched, Peter, before you... Well, I, I don't know. I listened to a lot of them. And um, I stayed at, I stayed late at my adverti- my advertising job. I was a copywriter. And I remember writing on like an IBM Selectric, you know, with the ball. And like a lot of correction fluid. And I wrote this and I gave it to my agent. And he said famously, I like it. I don't love it. I'm like, well, you're a bastard. And then I um but also you wrote a Murphy Brown to get a job on Murphy Brown, and we all know that you can't do that. You can't do that, which I was then told. So he said to me, you know, you don't do this. You don't just say that's the show I'm gonna work on and write a script. It doesn't work that way. And I said, Well, just tell me when Diane English reads it. <laughs> I wouldn't even care. I didn't even care. So I kept saying, and now so they sent that script and several of the plays and i got a, a ton of meetings they said wait they sent the script with a bunch of your plays my plays as to, writing samples as and writing he samples. sent that and he said that to different shows uh, producers and producers. shows and everything so i met all these different people who were like yeah you should definitely do television we would love to have you and blah 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 and i kept saying um has diane read it <laughs> i kept saying that and uh and in fact, she did read it and she hired me. And so I bucked that trend. Do you remember and what the episode was about that you yeah, wrote? Yeah, that- it was called, I think it was called like Face Value was the title of it. And it had to do with a clause in Murphy's contract that said she could not alter her physical appearance. And it made her say, wait a minute, what's my value here? Is it because I'm a reporter or is, what is it what I look like? We actually did make that show several wow. seasons later. We actually did. I probably rewrote it and we shot a version of it. But um, so, yeah, I, I, I ended up uh, working on Murphy Brown. And you did that for two, three years. You did that for a while. Yeah. Um, but there was, a, there was, you wrote for Carol Burnett first? Yeah. I, Diane hired me and then she said, uh, listen, I'm, I'm having a contract dispute with Warner Brothers, so I can't hire you now because obviously if I hire you, I'm, I'm sending a signal that I'm staying and I can't send that signal. So you just have to hang in there. And I waited as long as I could. And I was having these other meetings and everything. And finally, I just said to her, I, I got to get a job. You know, I can't. She goes, well, I still can't hire you. And so I took a job with Matt Williams, who was doing this thing called Carol and Company with Carol Burnett. Well, you can imagine what a thrill that was, because I'd grown up, you know, every Saturday night with Carol Burnett. And um, she's a lovely, lovely woman. And so I did that. But Diane called and said, all right, I'm ready. (laughs) I'm like, I'm on a show. 
And she said, well, see if you can write Murphy Brown episodes while you're there. This, by the way, this is never done. And I went to Matt Williams and I said, is there any chance that I can write Murphy Brown episodes while I'm here? And he goes, uh, yeah, don't, don't tell anybody, but sure. So I wrote two episodes wow. of the third, I think it was the third season of Murphy Brown while I was not on staff. Um, and, and then I joined, then I, I joined. And, and Carol's show ended and some, there was some sort of futzy thing with Disney where they said, well, you owe us another thing. And, and I was like, I don't think I do. I mean, I don't know a lot about contracts, but I think I don't owe you anything. But rather than just leave, I did Matt's next show, which was Home Improvement. And wait I, a minute, for, you did something first. Wish you were here, didn't you? Didn't you do? That, that was a lot. That was actually before anything. I did that oh. in New York. Oh, oh, okay. The weird show that I did. Uh, so for, you did Home Improvement before you ended up going to Murphy Brown physically? Yeah, I did the pilot in the first six episodes, and I wrote. I think I wrote one of those first six episodes, and Matt. I, I made How did you get hired as a, like a co-producer when you're this guy from New York writing plays with the thing? How, how does that happen? It's so, I mean, it, it's somewhat the luck of the draw because you ask a good question, Vicky. How did I, a picture at the time, <laughs> end up with all these highfalutin titles? You know, I should have been a staff writer on that. I mean, yeah. How do you end up as a co-producer on Home what, Improvement? What happened was... Matt knew I was going to, you know, he knew I wanted to leave, but I think he wanted to sweeten the pot, you know, and sort of say, try to convince me to stay. So he made me a co-producer on Home Improvement. And you only wrote one episode out of the six? I wrote one episode. I was work. I worked on the pilot and the other six with them, uh, the other five with them. But I So wrote, how much input were you, how much were you doing? A lot. Do th- a lot. A lot. But then, but see, then it got, it got dicey. <laughs> Because then my agent had to call Diane and go, well, he's definitely coming, but you know, he's a co-producer on Home Improvement. And I just know that put her teeth on edge because I did not deserve it. Like I certainly did not deserve to be a co-producer on Murphy Brown. Well, I was. And the show won Best Comedy that year. So I got an Emmy. I always call that my, my unearned Emmy, you know, where it was nice to have it, but I didn't really do anything. You earned it as a co-producer? Yes. You know, my manager, Mark Pariser, was the one who was Diane's, making all of Diane's deals. He's the Mm -hmm. one that held up that thing and made that money deal. But um, so you got it as a co-producer, not, yeah, wow. (laughs) And it just, and it's, and so it just sort of went from there that I, I kept getting these sort of cascading titles. Wow. You know, it was very accelerated is what it, and it was just the luck of the draw. It was an accelerated situation so that, you know, I then one off season on Murphy, I went to do Larry Sanders. And okay, so how did that relationship with Gary, oh, Gary, how, how actually, did that relationship start? It actually started because the, the fellow who was originally um, EPing um, Larry Sanders show was Fred Barron, who's a lovely guy. Love, lovely guy in the business. And I had done an episode of a show with him and Billy Crystal the year before on HBO. The show was called Sessions about a guy in therapy and whatever. I'd written one of those. And so I knew both Billy and Fred. Now Fred was doing Larry Sanders. He said, any chance you want to come over as a consulting producer? And I said, yeah, that would be great. 
And I went over and I was, I'd be in my office and I could hear through the wall, my, my office was next to Fred's. I could hear him fighting with Gary. And I was like, uh-oh, this isn't gonna be good. And Fred was out. And so Gary said to me, Ken, do you wanna be the EP? I said, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so that's how I became an EP on, on Sanders. I mean, the, the good thing was- Did you co-create Larry Sanders with No. Him? You didn't. No, the person who co-created it never worked on the show. It's a, a gentleman named uh, Dennis Klein, who created the show with Gary, and then they had a falling out. And Gary um, had a lot of falling. Had a I lot of falling out. <laughs> falling that was out. the theme, you know. That was the theme at like his um, memorial service. The number of people who got up and said, "I wasn't speaking to Gary." <laughs> and Really, they're, they're only- I wasn't at the memorial because he wasn't speaking to me at the end. <laughs> See, of course, there you go. But it's it's more the people, I, when I, I always say to Judd, like, how did we do it? Like, how did we stay to the end and not get iced out? I still don't know, but I, I, I have no idea, but whatever. But I really hooked into what he wanted to do, you know, and so, and it was, it was, How was your day to day with? I mean, did you ever have? Was he ever yelling? Were you ever the one he was yelling at, or did no, you not have that? Never. He never, wow. never yelled at me. In fact, when people would tell me stories about Gary yelling at them, I'd just shake my head like I don't even know what you're talking about. Wow. Because I'd heard. The you never even witnessed him doing it to other people. No, I heard it through the wall with Fred, <laughs> but then never again. Never again. Wow. So, you know, and then once I left Larry Sanders. They would have trouble finding people. Not, not that I was so great. They just couldn't find people to that he was comfortable with. And he would lose, he'd lose faith in people. And, and I'm sure there was some yelling then. But again, I wasn't there and I didn't hear. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I was helping him sweep up, you know, and writing more episodes, even though I wasn't on the show. But so that was an earned Emmy. That was a very earned Emmy. And I was nominated about 8 billion times. Yes, you were nominated 14. And You've been nominated 14 always times. always lose. And sometimes I'd be nominated twice in the same category. It was just like, it was like, I can't believe this. <laughs> so I was ready. When, I, when we finally won, I was like ready. I knew exactly what I was going to say because I had come up with it like three years earlier. So what, what did you finally win it for? The series finale. Took it right down to the wire. The series finale. Oh my God! I, I, um, Gary said something. He he spoke first when we won, and he said something like, um, "Well, it's still uh, an honor to be nominated." You know, and I, and then he told me to say, "Gary, Gary, we we won." Oh, well, that's that's good too. That's good too. And then and then I said, "I think it says something about um, our business and and our country as a whole." <laughs> that in the year, whatever the year was, a comedy writing award can be won by a Gentile. And I thank you. So that was what I said. <laughs> huge laugh, huge laugh. And we went off stage and we we're heading down the hall and he just goes to me, don't ever be that funny again. <laughs> I, got, I had gotten a bigger laugh than he had. So I think he was a little annoyed. <laughs> That's really fabulous. <laughs> Won't ever be that funny again. Tom Brokaw was in the wings when we came out. That was very funny, young man. <laughs> so, so, okay. So how did your relationship with Dennis Leary start? 
on the job, right? He had been watching Larry Sanders, like everybody else in the business and nobody else, by the way, you could talk to anybody in the country and say, I work on Larry Sanders. They just look at you like, what, what's that? You know, what? Is that an, people didn't, people, people in the business watched that show and a, not a lot of non, you know, really as, as variety likes to call them non pros, not, not a lot of those people watched the show. So it was a mystery. And remember this was, in the early days of HBO, and a lot of people didn't get HBO. Well, so, that's true. You know, that's really true. Like working in a vacuum, except in the business. Right. And he had been watching the show and really enjoying it. And he wrote my name down. He either watched one of my episodes or whatever. And he wrote my name down on a pad. And so at the time, was, Dennis was doing stand up. Was he doing what he else was movie. he doing? He was movie. in a movie. He'd been doing movies. And wait, had you done any movies to this point? Because you've done a lot of movies. Had you done any movies to this point? Probably that had started. Yeah, they overlapped. I, I thought I was going to retire to movies, and it, but they just started. They overlapped. And I did I did like a lot of movies, a lot of movies. And I read every movie. And oh, God, the 90s and into the, you know, the early aughts was it was a lot of stuff. Um, but Dennis finally wanted to do a TV show and he'd done the Thomas Crown Affair and he had a, uh, a guy, a, a New York City detective, that's what he was playing in the movie, but he had a guy who had been a real detective who was his technical advisor and the guy's life was a shit show and, get, and, and he looked at it and said, I'd love to make that show, I'd like to make that show, but he'd never done television, so he had that pad still and my name was on it, so he said, I want to meet him so I went to Connecticut to his house in Connecticut drove was driven up there and he had a quite a large Irish wolfhound at the time who immediately upon me arriving buried its head in my balls so I'm like, this is a great start usually it's the talent who does that but this is I can accept it and so we we talked and and I <laughs> I love to remind him of this because I was never like a real big fan of his have a stand-up. <laughs> so um, anyway, he said, I want to do a TV show and this is the idea. And I've written some pages, which is never good. You know, <laughs> an actor says, I want to star and I've I, written oh my some God. pages. An actor, an actor with pages is like a three-year-old with a Glock. You know, nothing, <laughs> nothing good is going to come of that. So but I took the pages. It turned out to be almost a whole script, by the way. And now I'm being driven back to New York and I start to read the script. And as I'm reading- Wait, before you tell me about the script, what did he pitch you verbally before you took the pages? He said, I, I'm a New York City detective. My life is a fucking mess. I'm married. I got a girlfriend. I got an addiction. I got a thing. I got a whatever. That's okay. all. Okay. So it was going to be like, you know, sort of a real, a, a, a real life look at at, at a squad of New York City detectives. So I started to read these pages. Is it, is it funny? Is it only, is yeah. it serious? Is it fun? It's both. It was mostly funny. It was mostly okay. funny. It was meant, you know, it was meant to be a half hour thing. Mm -hmm. So as, I, as I'm reading, I start to think, what would I write on the next page? And I start to turn the page and it would be there. <gasps> some version of it. Wow. And, I, and, and because that happened, I went, I think I can work with this guy. I think we have, and of course, once we get to know each other, we're both from Massachusetts, we're both Irish Catholic uh, upbringing, 
all this. Stuff. So we had all this, this groundwork already mm -hmm. laid between us. So it's almost like a shorthand. And so we started, so we wrote the show together and really got on incredibly well. And then while we were shooting that show, which was called The Job, it's a really wonderful show. Mm -hmm. it's, the, and anybody watching this, the DVD set is available <laughs> for sale. Is it public. the DVD? Is it is it stream available to stream? I've, I I know I, I watched know. a couple of episodes. I, no, I don't think it is. I, I think somebody told me it was, and I've mm -hmm. never been able to track it down. But it's a wonderful show. It's really funny. Uh, really I'm, I'm going to track that down. You should. It's it's really good, and it's the precursor to Rescue Me. It's mm -hmm. it's Rescue Me without the drama part, because we're I was shooting an episode. I was directing an episode of The Job on 9-11. Down, I'd left Manhattan. I was in Seabright, New Jersey, you know, 30 minutes down the coast. Mm -hmm. And we'd set up, you know, they set up the monitors for the day. It was early mm -hmm. morning and they'd mm -hmm. set up the monitors. And somebody said, you know, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. I said, what? So now we all gather around the monitors. Well, you could walk from the monitors down the beach and look up towards Manhattan and see. The oh, wow! So now we're just trying to figure out what are we going to do. Like, and I, I said to the to the AD, I think we have to let everybody go home because people are flipping out, and I don't know how some of these people are going to get home. Like, how are people going to get to Long Island? So it it was a it was a big deal. So we left, and as as I'm talking to him about this, tiny tiny pieces of paper are. <gasps> coming down like snow, tiny between us. So Dennis and I, once we had to start, we had to start shooting three days later for insurance purposes. We had to shoot one scene, which I'll never forget because we shot in somebody's basement and the people next door, their father had not come home. Oh. And so people were, you know, and that was when you were sort of living in the city, and there were all the posters, you know, missing and that whole thing. And the smell of a, of, a, of a massive electrical fire in the city. And we knew a lot of firefighters. And I said to Dennis one day. Did Dennis have, he, didn't he have firefighters in his family? Yeah, he had a fire, a fire, yes. And one who passed away mm -hmm. in a, a terrible fire earlier, earlier than this time, mm -hmm. uh, his cousin. And I said to him, thinking about the guys working on a pile, mm -hmm. I said, you know, this is the show we should be doing. Can you imagine what these guys, what their life is going to be like after this, processing this? And I promptly forgot about it. And a year later, he, he called me and he said, I think we should do that show now. And I'm just like, I don't even know what you're talking about. He goes, you know, that show about when you were talking about the pile and the guys. And that's how we did. That's how we did Rescue Me. Wow. And how did it come to be a thing that he would see ghosts, that they would be, because that's, that was a very interesting choice. Yeah. I didn't like that choice, to be honest with you. Um, I was against that choice. Mm -hmm. And then I would constantly, I would constantly be on Dennis saying, here are the rules of your stupid <laughs> ghosts. Okay. Here are the rules. Like he, I remember one time he said, Oh, uh, he comes home and his cousin Jimmy, you know, who's the main ghost, you know, who died in 9-11, is sort of staying with him or showing up a lot in the house that he's in. 
And he goes, hey, uh, while you were away at work today, your wife had some guy over. And I said, eh, no, <laughs> no. The, uh, the ghost is an internalized expression of something. It can't tell you things you don't know, okay? Like it always hounding him about those stupid ghosts. Then we had Jesus in the, I mean, just got out of hand. I Jesus was, was crazy. Jesus was crazy. <laughs> I know, I know. So I just, I, I, I said, I don't think that's the show we're doing. I think we're doing a realistic portrayal that sometimes, yes, gets comedic, but it's mostly a realistic portrayal of these people, their lives and whatever. So to put that dramatic invention into that thing felt wrong to me. And it still does. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in season three now and I watched the original in real time. So it's been a long time. So I can't remember right now. It's at a point of trying to figure out are the ghosts there because he meets some woman who says that you can see dead people or something like, is he really seeing dead people or is he totally whack? You know, like what's happening there? You know, he may have if you ask Dennis, he would he might have a different. Um, I'm going to put a light on because it's getting a little dark. Yeah, good. See if I can. That's good. Lighten it up. Ah, I don't know. Wait, Let's... no. Now you're part. There you go. Is that too much? No. Okay. He had put it a little more on your face, Peter. It's on yeah. down low. There you go. There. Yeah. I'm ready for my close up. <laughs> so he may have thought. The, these were sort of hauntings. And I always kept saying, it, it, this is a manifestation of feeling, mm -hmm. of loss, of something. If I could draw that line to it, then I gave it, it, I gave it a psychological underpinning so it could make sense dramatically, that it was coming from that place. And that's why I really was on him about it doesn't fit into, if it doesn't fit into that category of psychological expression of something, then we can't do it. It right has to be that otherwise we're taking such a big swing well we we pared back on those things as the series go on but the series ends with a ghost it ends with him driving away with Lou. all right so, don't don't remind me because i i don't remember and i'm you're giving me a spoiler and i'm i'm in gonna, season three and i'm like I'm no i won't say yeah well lou i already know who lou is love yeah. lou um yeah. I love them all. I mean, they're just such a part of their, they're part of our family now. We watch it every night and yeah. um, I just love them. So, so you and Dennis, you have ideas for maybe doing something else again? Yeah, we always talk about it. We, whenever we get together, it's like, we got to do something. Cause you know, you the do. brain is frankly yawning open for both of us and especially him with that smoking, you know, <laughs> you can probably hear the grim reaper every day you know um but we always say we gotta we gotta do it we gotta do it and i that the show that i mentioned to you about the catholic priest i said mm -hmm. wouldn't you want to do that and he's like first of all i don't think you can do it i don't think you can pull it off and whatever and i said oh i'll show you and i wrote it and he went god this is really funny and whatever and i said so you do you want to do it and he went nope <laughs> he just had he has such a negative um reaction to the church based on his own experience that he said, I just don't want to play that. So, so much for that idea. All right, we'll see. So is there something called, all right, so those two things, and you, you've gone through this crisis, you're in a bit of a crisis about, please know that 
it's not a fluke. It was all, <laughs> it, it, like, like every word Thank is you. a gem. I mean, it's just uh, well, an absolute gem. I cannot tell you the joy. I, I can't wait. We watch it late at night and I can't wait to get to the next episode. It's really true. And I it's really in my top five of all time. It's just, well, that's, that's and I've been screaming about it in all the rooms as they were and telling everybody. So all these, you have all these new fans of young great. people that didn't see it the first time around that are really loving it. I do appreciate that. Well, it's, 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 it, you're doing a service to them as well. Boy, if there's ever been a calling card for don't drink, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, there's some crazy it. shit that goes on. I just, yeah. I, we just watched the episode where Sheila sets up Tommy and puts vodka on his thing and yeah, busts yeah. up his house and just crazy shit going on. Crazy shit. Crazy shit. So if you, all right, so those two shows aside that you'd love to do, is there something, would you like to do like a, so the, all right, so before we move on from this, the Mad About You reboot, um, which by the way, my daughter, everything in the original Mad About You, Jamie and Paul, what was yeah. my life with Gabe? Exactly. Yeah. We used to think they were coming in. I think everybody thought that they were coming into our house with a camera and they were recording our life and that they were putting it up on TV. And yeah. I felt the same way about the reboot. My daughter was at Tish, you know, we, it, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, what, what brought you to that? That seemed to be like a different feeling than anything you'd done before. Yeah. They, I, I didn't, I can't say that I really watched the original that mm -hmm. much. I maybe saw one or two episodes, but didn't really remember it. Um, it was more a case of um, Paul and Helen looking for a partner who could run a show, um, who could, you know, get their vision on the screen. And, you know, it's one of those situations, they've done 160 episodes of the show. I'm not going to tell them anything new about their show. I'm going to say, here's where the characters are now. What stories can we tell mm -hmm. that will be, you know evocative in terms of where they are in their marriage where they are in their at their age and all that so that's what we focused on um you know so it was just it, it was different i didn't i haven't done a lot of half hours like mm -hmm. that you know but it was different and really enjoyable i actually said to paul and helen at one point you know and again it was really hard because of the schedule just that and i said to oh, the how two, so oh, an impossible like they said you've got to have all the episodes done by X date. And we were like, well, we didn't know that going in, but okay. And then one month later, we got to move it up. Can you have six of them done by this date? And then and it just kept getting compressed, compressed, compressed. It was really hard. Did you write with Paul? Did you write separately? How did that work? We did both. We did mm -hmm. both. Um, and was that a, a good collaboration for you? Yeah, very, very good. Like I would never have been able to, I couldn't have done it without Paul. That's how much we were writing together. There's, I could not have physically done it wow. without Paul. He's a very good writer. Mm -hmm. I don't think he gets a lot of credit for that, but he's a very good writer. And I just, I have to say again, never could have done it. Okay, so the last thing I wanted to ask you about one film to touch on, analyze this, working yeah. with De Niro, working with De Niro and Billy Crystal. Yeah. What, 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 how did you come into that experience and, and how did that evolve and what was that like for you? You know, I was doctoring a lot of scripts back then. 
I would doctor scripts. I would see movies before they came out. You know, people would say to me, we only, if, if we were to pay, if we were to pay for one week of reshoots, what would you suggest we reshoot on? Mm. And I would say, I'd say this and that, you know, so I was doing all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. In the case of Analyze This, um, there had been an original script, which I never saw by Ken Lonergan. So I can't say, speak to any of that because I didn't see it. Then there was another, the, the next draft was written by a writer who I, who I know, um, the television writer. Mm -hmm. And I, I, so they gave it to me and I went in and I said, look, um, this is gonna be silly and you shouldn't do it. There's only really one way to do this. You have to do it with an actor where the audience sort of believes that they're the character, which means you can only do it with somebody who is in the Godfather. <laughs> I, I, this is what I said, and I, be, I believe this because otherwise it's just silly, you know? But if you sort of in the back of your mind go, well, he was in the Godfather. I mean, he, <laughs> that's Michael Corleone or that's, you know, whoever that is, you know? That's young. It's Vito. That's young Vito. I mean, of course, whatever. So I, they said they agreed with me. And so I said, I'm going to write a script that will attract one of those guys, you know? But I was also working with Billy. Billy was involved and whatever. So the way we wrote it was we'd sit together and improvise. So Billy would play his part and I would be De Niro. So some of those. Did you do it with De Niro in mind specifically? Yeah, I was trying to get De Niro. That's who I really, of all those actors, I said, this is the guy who I think can do comedy. Don't ask me why I thought that. I said, this is the guy I think that can do comedy. And so I would be De Niro. And so we'd be in Billy's office and I'd be writing everything down. But all, some of the lines from that, I can still remember. Usually people say to me, did you write this? And I go, it's been too long. I don't remember. <laughs> I sat on that couch and he, and he goes, oh, here's what it is. And I go, you. You are good. Yes, you are. You're good. <laughs> the weight is, where did it go? I don't know. You're good. You're good. People still come up to me and go, you, you. <laughs> but that was just through improvisation, sitting there and, and doing that. Wow. So I wrote the script and then we sent it to De Niro and he was interested. And we went to New York and had a meeting with him. And he was like, oh, I would do this. He was not, he's somewhat taciturn, I think we can say about Mr. De Niro. Mm -hmm. um, and so- A very I good realized, friend of mine's his restaurant partner, yeah. Drew, Drew Nieperin, yeah. Okay. So I then went off and I, I, I took what he said and tried to incorporate it in the script. But remember, I've worked with Billy before. So I got, now I got, I got Billy here and then I got Bob over here and I wrote the most schizophrenic draft of all time. It was just like- <laughs> Is like, he intimidating? Was he intimidating? Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, my, my second wife, had we just had our first child and we were going for Christmas up in um, Massachusetts. And my son at that time was less than two months old. And so it's freezing cold in New York. She can't leave the hotel room. So she's stuck in the hotel with a two month old, right? And De Niro says, uh, maybe if you stay another day, we can talk again tomorrow. And I go, well, really, you know, my wife is stuck in the thing. And he says, what are you, a man or a mouse? No. And I 
he I, didn't. I'm not quite sure he was kidding. And I said, well, throw a piece of cheese down and I'll show you. I mean, you know, I just made a joke out of it. But he was he was intimidating. Again, because not because he's a, an asshole or anything. He just doesn't say a lot. Wow. So, so you know, like there was a, um, oh God, there was an, a director who was brought in at one point to do that movie. And they had a meeting and something happened in the meeting. And, and I don't know what, it, I don't remember what it was, but the guy left and everybody sort of looked at Bob and said, what do you think? And he said, this guy, I got no faith in. This guy, I got no faith in seven words. He was out, out. And he was told, the guy was told, he'd come from London and he was told, you're out. And he, he wept in that moment. And I'm just like, ooh, this is a fucking tough business, man. Wow. So, so you know, Bob was a man of few words, and, and but had a sense. Anyway, I wrote a schizophrenic draft. I was doing Billy, <laughs> the shtick lock, you know, I was doing the funny and the thing. And then when Bob, I would, I'd be doing like Goodfellas. It was just like, it, it was insane. I couldn't crack it. And I said, look, I, I don't know how to do this. I'm sorry. I have to, I have to recuse myself. Really? I, I left the project. And then, and then Harold came in and Harold knew how to do both. He was the one who took my screenplay and then figured out the way to do it. And then he called me and said, you have to come back now and help me get it ready to shoot and, and work on some other character stuff and whatever else. So it was really Harold who cracked the, 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 the key on that movie. Wow. Yeah. Is, so you said earlier that you didn't watch TV, that your wife would have TV on. Do you watch TV now or do you still not watch TV? I, I have to force myself. I'm not, I'm such, so not a good viewer, but I do, I do watch television. Well, why are you not a good viewer? Because you're critical? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's that thing of being in it and kind of going, well, everybody says this is good. What the, you know, <laughs> I'm just like, however, you know, my, I, I feel like my career is bookending because um, my deal, my overall ends at the end of the year with FX. And it, it's not a good time for overalls. And it's also not a great time for older white guys. So I've really hit perfect. I'm in a perfect place. So there's every possibility. I may not, for the first time in something like 27 years, may not be in an overall. And that's not the end of the world, of course. But my agent said to me, um, is there a show you'd like to work on if it comes to that? Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, succession. <laughs> oh, oh see, you make that even better it's it's the same thing all over again i came in going i only want to work on that show i only want to work on murphy brown and now i'm saying yeah i only want to work on that show so i'm just you know i'm dooming myself well i don't know so far it's worked out pretty well for you peter yeah so far, so far, Vicky. So anyway. far, so good. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm going to be seeing your name in those credits uh, pretty soon. Well, you'll be seeing my name, hopefully, on Broadway, as we used to say on the Radio for Europe commercial. Really? Uh, yeah, several years ago. In fact, while I was working with uh, Norman, I was approached about writing uh, a play based on the book not the movie, the original book of The War of the Roses. 
and I did it and it's uh, going on broad. In fact, I'm leaving here to have dinner with the producers and uh, Jason Alexander who's directing. Um, I just wrote to Jason's person three hours ago. Yeah. Wow. Jay is uh, Jay is making a name for himself as a director in the theater. He's done some wonderful stuff. So we've been working on that for the last two or three years. And so now it's actually going to happen uh, either fall of next year or spring. Of How thrilling is that? It's really, I mean, it's a, it's a dream, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm, if it happens, that's fantastic. I just hope it happens before I pass away. Oh, but, um, oh, please do me a favor. Tell Jason when you go to dinner that you just did this show because he literally, I just spoke to his person this afternoon because he said yes to Nancy Allen, have her call my person. And the person is giving me a hard time, but Jason oh. said yes. Okay, anyway. I'll, tell, I'll tell him he said hi. I would appreciate that. I, I so please do not ever think for one second that this was a fluke because <laughs> I have so adored your work. And I'm telling you, I wait with bated breath every night to watch again. So I look forward to whatever, whether it's Broadway, if it's watching your shows on Succession, if it's the show that you get made with the priest, I want to watch and I'm going to be there. Too. Um, thank you so much for doing this again, Peter. It was wonderful to see you. Uh, great to see you too. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.